This is a UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For details about the centre, please go to our website at www.ucd.ie forward slash chomi. To listen to other episodes from our archive, please visit the centre's iTunes page or our media website www.chomi.org. In this episode, recorded on the 30th of March 2017, Dr. David Dernan from the UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland reads his paper entitled, It is Our Duty, Medical Provision in the Irish Experience of the First World War. The chair for this paper was the director of the UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland, Associate Professor Catherine Cox. So today uh, we have Dr. David Dernan, um, who is known to many of you already, um, who finished his PhD with us here at the centre um, last year, not even yet, last year, yeah, um, less than a year, yeah. um, and it was of course IRC funded. Um, David has been awarded many prizes, um, including the RCPI uh, uh, History of Medicine Research Award. And he's recently published um, an edited collection with Ian Miller on medicine, health, and the Irish experiences of conflict. And I think it's one of the first books to try and bring together uh, scholars, including Nuda, who's sitting here, who are trying to look and join up that um, debate on medicine and warfare for the Irish case. So um, it's an important collection um, to have out, and congratulations on that as well. But today, David is going to be talking to us about um, the medical vision and the Irish experience of the First World War. So, David, hand it over to you. That's great. Thank you very much. Okay, so some 210,000 Irish personnel enlisted to serve with the British forces during the First World War. And among these were Irish medics, that's doctors, surgeons, general practitioners who participated in the conflict. This paper is going to look at the response of Ireland's medical personnel to the First World War. I'll analyse enlistment patterns and determine how international initiatives, such as the creation of specialised recruiting committees, were adopted in Ireland and influenced the trends of Irish medical enlistment into the Royal Army Medical Corps, which was the medical wing of the British Army. Irish medical involvement in the First World War was not just limited to the enlistment of men into the British Army Medical Services. The Royal Army Medical Corps Command also identified Ireland's network of hospitals as an appropriate support system for Britain's military hospitals. I will therefore also explore the effects of the Royal Army Medical Corps Irish Command's attempts to establish a suitable medical setup to receive sick and wounded soldiers who were returned to Ireland and outline how this impacted on civilian medical care. So, just to give you a bit of background, by 1912, the Royal Army Medical Corps was already preparing for large-scale war. The Corps increased its number of permanent members and built a sizeable reserve of medical personnel to call upon in the case of national emergency. On the 4th of August 1914, when Britain formally declared war, the Royal Army Medical Corps immediately deployed a significant contingent of medical personnel. So this included 900 medical officers and 10,000 other ranked members. So that would include stretcher bearers, that type of um, that type of person, and also 600 military nurses to accompany the British Expeditionary Force. It was the largest medical contingent of any force that had left Britain. Despite this, it soon became apparent that the Royal Army Medical Corps was significantly understaffed for the demands of war. And to alleviate the shortage of doctors, the War Office sought to recruit more civilian medical personnel into the Corps. 
Ireland, with its overstocked medical profession, provided the War Office with a considerable pool of potential recruits. So approximately 3,300 Irish doctors participated in the First World War. This was about half the registered Irish medical profession. On the 6th of August 1914, Trinity College Dublin, the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland and the Apothecaries Hall launched the first medical recruitment campaign of the war in Ireland. They publicly requested recently qualified medical practitioners who were not in permanent employment to send their details, their names, their educational qualifications to the registrars of these institutions. The registrars forwarded the applicants' details to the War Office, who then offered commissions to the doctors based on their own details. An article in the British Medical Journal asserted that the Irish response to the early recruitment campaign was large and immediate. These claims of a quick and considerable response are borne out in the sample of doctors examined. So I examined a sample of roughly a thousand of these doctors. And between the start of the war and the 31st of December 1914, about 20% of these enlisted and began serving with the Corps. The initial support for the war demonstrated by Irish doctors was comparable to that of Irish men joining the combat forces of the British Army. The first months of the war were the peak period of Irish enlistments into the non-medical forces of the British Army. Following the initial five-month period, however, the enlistment rates of Irish doctors declined. There's no monocausal explanation to account for the alterations in the pattern of Irish enlistment rates in the British Army during the First World War. Instead, there are several plausible explanations for peaks and troughs. After the first battles of the war, men enlisting in the regular regiments of the army returned home for routine rest or for medical treatment and shared stories of their experiences with their contemporaries. Their accounts detailed the harsh realities of war and they may have discouraged others from enlisting. In addition, several doctors who returned from war service complained that the Royal Army Medical Corps assigned them to locations where medical expertise was not at all required. For example, the Royal Army Medical Corps assigned Dr. Stafford A.D. Curran, who was educated at the Catholic University Dublin and joined the RAMC in 1901 to France. And he complained that in his location in France, there was nothing to be done in the way of work during his time there. Irish doctors were also reluctant to enlist after the end of the, init the initial wave of enthusiasm because of increased employment opportunities in Ireland. War was good for business for Ireland's doctors, at least for the period 1914 to 1918. Doctors who vacated their jobs to join the RAMC in the early months of the war freed up opportunities for other medical personnel in Ireland. Rather than enlist, recent Irish medical graduates filled the new vacancies opening up throughout the country. Women doctors especially benefited from the departure of medical men for war. In 1916, Charles Benson, who was an assistant surgeon at Sir Patrick Dunn's hospital, claimed that the war has given women an opportunity of proving their mettle and that they have taken it with the earnest enthusiasm is common knowledge. War has had the effect of levelling many biases, and not least among them is that against the women members of our profession, many of whom have been successful candidates for appointments that were previously not open to them. The rush to fill vacant posts caused considerable concern for doctors, who feared that should they enlist in the British Army, their jobs would no longer be available on their return. English doctors who had already enlisted in the Royal Army Medical Corps were concerned about the security of their jobs, partly because of the subsequent influx of Irish doctors into the region. An anonymous English physician who was captain in the Royal Army Medical Corps complained in a letter to the British Medical Journal that the number of British medical professionals enlisting in the war effort left it open to young Irish practitioners to profit and set up practice in the homes of the English, Scottish and Welsh absentees, 
to their obvious hurt. So, due to the decline in the number of Irish enlisting in the British Army from early 1915, the War Office introduced a number of new initiatives to raise Irish recruitment levels, including the appointment of Lord Wimborne as Specialised Director of Recruiting for Ireland. Wimborne believed a specialised group was required to encourage recruitment among medical personnel, and he looked towards medical organisations such as the British Medical Association to lead the way. In July 1915, the British Medical Association formed the Central Medical War Committee, which sought to encourage members of the medical profession in England, Wales and Ireland to enlist in the Royal Army Medical Corps. To achieve maximum results and efficiency regarding recruitment, the Central Medical War Committee established subsidiary groups to cover various regions, and as part of this initiative, the Irish Medical War Committee was established. To achieve its aim of encouraging as many men as possible to enlist into the Royal Army Medical Corps without wholly sacrificing the needs of the civilian community, the Irish Committee took responsibility for medical recruitment campaigns. In November 1915, at one of its very first meetings, the Irish Medical War Committee issued a circular letter to every member of the medical profession up to the age of 45, which was the age limit for war service for doctors, urging them to volunteer for service in the RAMC. The committee identified workhouse and dispensary medical officers as a potential pool of recruits. These medical officers were employed as part of the Irish poor law system, and to entice medical officers to leave their position temporarily to participate in the war, it was important that the Irish Medical War Committee could offer them some level of job protection. To achieve this, the committee encouraged those leaving to enlist to nominate their own replacements for their time away, so that it would provide them with some sense of security and a knowledge that their job would be available for them when they returned. The committee also sought the cooperation of national and local bodies responsible for the employment of medical officers, the Local Government Board of Ireland and the Poor Law Boards of Guardians. And with regard to the appointment of medical officers, while guardians hired doctors to the various poor law dispensary district posts, the Local Government Board sanctioned the appointments. The Local Government Board cooperated with the Irish Medical War Committee and ultimately, by 1916, agreed to refuse to sanction the appointment of medical personnel of military age to state posts. So any doctor of military age could not be appointed to state posts. This caused considerable frustration among some of the Boards of Guardians. In 1916, the Castlebar Board of Guardians complained about the Local Government Board's refusal to sanction the appointment of a new medical officer for the Bala district, because he was of military age. A member of the Board of Guardians encouraged the Guardian's clerk to write to the Local Government Board and tell them how hard it is for us to get a doctor. Guardian Daily declared that the drones of the Local Government Board office can dictate to us all right, a safe distance from the war. I would like to see doctors going to the front, but charity begins at home. Yet no resolution was reached and the Local Government Board refused to budge. Open hostility ultimately emerges between several boards of guardians and the local government board over the issue and continues for the remainder of the war, ultimately culminating in 1918 with several boards, including the North Dublin board, refusing to adhere to the local government board's instructions. So against this backdrop of hostility and obvious difficulty regarding recruitment, Irish medics continue to enlist. Why did they do so? There were several factors, and firstly, Britain's Army Medical Services offered viable employment prospects to members of the Irish medical profession. Due to the popularity of medical courses in Ireland during the pre-war years, the number of qualified doctors in search of work in Ireland had increased. There were simply insufficient opportunities in Ireland to cater for the streams of medical graduates emerging from Ireland's educational institutions. 
as a consequence of the overcrowded medical profession and limited job prospects, which were limited even more during war because of the age restrictions, many Irish doctors moved abroad to earn a living, and among those were those who sought commissions in the British Army Medical Services. The RAMC salary, which was about £400 plus a uniform allowance, certainly enticed junior medical men into the corps. It was the recently qualified medical graduate rather than the high-earning general practitioner who was most likely to enlist into the Royal Army Medical Corps for the salary. In saying that, Irish doctors in state-funded appointments, so poor law dispensaries and workhouse medical officers, who had not established a successful private practice, also benefited financially from enlistment. A common arrangement between the boards of guardians and the medical officers saw those that were enlisting for war retain a portion of their state salary, so they'd retain roughly half of their salary from the state, while also consider continuing then to get pay from the Royal Army Medical Corps. So they benefited more than they would have had they not enlisted. Yet in saying that, others enlisted even though it reduced their annual income. In 1916, for example, three out of the four poor law medical officers in the Abbey Leakes Union of the Queen's County applied to the Board of Guardians for a leave of absence to serve in the war. After considerable discussion amongst them, the Guardians agreed to sanction this on the condition that the salaries would be relinquished, their salaries for poor, as poor law MOs would be relinquished. The doctors agreed and subsequently enlisted. So because of this, it's important to look at some additional factors which encourage enlistment. And patriotic fervour, for example, certainly propelled Irish doctors to enlist. Recruiting committees attempted to stir up feelings of patriotism amongst the Irish population to encourage enlistment. James Abraham, who was an Irish surgeon, recalled that posters of Kitchener stared me in the face everywhere, pointing with an exaggerated hand saying, your king and country need you. He subsequently enlisted. Medical recruitment committees and key figures in medical education emphasised patriotic duty in their plea for volunteers. In 1915, Dr Conway Dwyer, who was president of the Royal College of Surgeons and also a member of the Irish Medical War Committee, said at an address in the Royal College of Surgeons licensing ceremony that his usual task of offering career advice to graduates was much easier that year. He said, graduates should enter as speedily as possible the Royal Army Medical Corps to place their professional skill and knowledge at the disposal of their king and country. Of the absolute necessity of that choice, there can be no question. In giving their services to the empire in our hour of supremest need, they were fulfilling the paramount duty of every citizen. According to, to Dwyer, it was the duty of Irish doctors as citizens of the British Empire to involve themselves in the war effort. The Irish Medical War Committee continued to refer to doctors' patriotism throughout the war. Recruiters also exploited feelings of moral compulsion that manifested among some sections of the Irish population as a consequence of the violent nature of the alleged atrocities. For instance, members of the Irish Medical War Committee often urged colleagues at medical conferences and graduation ceremonies to enlist, arguing that it was humane, and such humanity was expected given the violent nature of conflicts. In one such appeal, the committee noted that, bearing in mind the ready response which its former appeals have received, and acknowledging the valuable service which the Irish doctors have rendered in the war, the committee believes that this appeal will not be made in vain and that the call of suffering humanity will find a ready response from Irish medical men, whose sympathy and generous self-sacrifice in alleviation of suffering have become traditional. This is an appeal to them from the wounded. <coughs> Reports from troops and medics near the front lines supported the Irish Medical War Committee's rhetoric. In their letters and postcards home, many of those in the British Army recounted stories of German atrocities. On the 25th of June 1915, shortly after a series of setbacks affecting British morale, Stafford A.D. Curran noted in his journal that it is pure, unadulterated, cold-blooded murder on both sides. 
but ours is certainly justified, as goodness knows the men have had just cause. Economic motivation, patriotism and moral justification was evident in both the enlistment of Irish men into the combat forces of the British Army, as well as doctors into the Royal Army Medical Corps. However, there were also other factors that were solely related to members of the medical profession. In the early months of the war, for example, senior doctors contended that it was the responsibility of the medical profession to participate in the conflict. On the 3rd of December 1914, Thomas Gordon, who was surgeon to the Adelaide Hospital, Dublin, argued in an address given to the Students' Union of the Royal College of Surgeons that, if it were my duty to urge you to learn the use of the rifle and bayonet, I should dwell on a more stir stirring motive still. <coughs> the defence of our homes, our women, our children, and all else we hold dear against the savage and cruel barbarism. My message for you tonight is different. For you, there is a call to join a band of men to whom are entrusted the highest use of science, whose duty it is not to destroy life, but if possible, to save it, to relieve the suffering and to heal the wounded. With the soldier, you are called to a work of self-sacrifice. It may be to acts of heroism. You must share with him the dangers of battle, but unlike him, you must, in your work, see no difference between friend and foe. For you, the only enemies are disease, pain and death. For you, it is to love your enemies. For you, it is indeed to fight, but under the banner of the Prince of Peace. As Gordon's speech shows, the rhetoric used by medical men in favour of wartime participation emphasised that it was a doctor's responsibility to enlist given their professional skill. In his 1915 address, Dwyer reiterated a similar message, arguing that doctors were fortunate enough to be in a, the position of performing their duty with consciousness of being equipped with a technical professional skill which enormously enhances the value of their services. Whatever their individual motivations, Irish doctors' experience of the First World War medical machine began on July 1914, when the Royal Army Medical Corps instructed MOs already enlisted in the Corps to begin mobilising. So the image that you can see there il illustrates the evacuation chain that operated on most battlefields of the Western Front. So the ABC is the portion of battle line. The little circles behind that then are the aid posts of battalions in action. Behind that then the X is the advanced dressing stations. And then the F is the field ambulance divisions. And then the rest then is the chain of evacuation leading as far as railways. So just to give you some sort of background and information on that, stretcher bearers would collect injured soldiers from combat zones and carry them to their nearest regimental aid post, which was a zone that was occupied by medical officers. This could be located anywhere. It could be in a shell crater, it could be in structural ruins. And here injured soldiers had their advanced, their wounds dressed and were then transported by field ambulance, which was often horse-drawn carriage or motor vehicle, to a casualty clearing station. Royal Army Medical Corps personnel in the casualty clearing station dealt with injuries requiring immediate treatment and conducted numerous surgical procedures. Ambulance cars and trains then transported the wounded fit for transportation to nearby hospitals established by the Royal Army Medical Corps or voluntary groups such as the British Red Cross. So the British Red Cross also established hospitals in these areas. Medical officers then identified soldiers requiring treatment in hospitals on the home front and recommended these men be moved by hospital ship back to domestic <coughs> hospitals in Britain and Ireland. Significant numbers of medical personnel occupied roles at each stage of this casualty clearing process and Irish doctors were amongst them since the outbreak of the war. The wartime experiences varied significantly depending on their role, location and the battles occurring in their locality. A regimental medical officer based near the front line, could find himself deeply involved in the casualty clearing process on the battlefield. 
Doctors often had problems with regimental medical officer work because of its sporadic nature, so they could be very busy at one moment and deathly quiet the next. For example, Richard Hingston, who enlisted in the Indian Medical Services, served as a regimental of medical officer in a small town close to Bombay. And Hingston was no stranger to conflict, having served with the medical services for a number of years prior to war. In November 1914, however, he noted, I have been present at spectacles which for the first time have given me a timely impression of the real horrors of war. At dusk, an urgent message came demanding every medical officer that could possibly be spared. On our arrival at the hospital, chaos and confusion reigned supreme. Wounded, dying and dead strewed the ground in all directions. Every shed was packed to overflowing. No beds, no blankets, no water, no food. The wounded arrived in so fast that there was scarcely time to apply the simplest dressings. No operation but the most urgent amputations could be performed. The wounded were groaning and crying. The place was red with blood. In contrast, Stafford A.D. Curran's time as a regimental medical officer was characterised by long periods of activity, inactivity. Despite being based near the front lines, he often found himself with little to do. Instead, he spent his time in his living quarters rather than on the battlefield, and the constant change of living arrangements annoyed him greatly. He said, I asked the lady of the brewery if she could let me have a room. Five francs a month, of course. It is a real shame that these French people seem to think we are here for amusement. Well, I wish I'd never seen their rotten country. The experiences of both Hingston and A.D. Curran demonstrate that there was varied experiences of doctors in similar roles, that it very much depended on the battles that were going on in their locality. This inactivity is interesting because it appears to have caused significant mental strain for the doctors. A.D. Curran's idleness during the early months of the conflict initiated an apparent bout of depression. Early parts of his wartime diary are characterised by gloomy statements. He says, I again went to report myself, but there was no orders, and I returned to the hotel feeling very depressed and completely fed up with life in general. Did not hear any firing today. I saw a few aeroplanes. Hope for a better tomorrow. Richard Hingston, who had been in the thick of the action during the early months of the war, acknowledged that he too suffered from depression as a consequence of inactivity after his reassignment to Basra. He said, What a year of sorrow and destruction to the world, and for myself, what a year of worthlessness and waste. Looking back on the past two years, solely from a personal and selfish standpoint, I find them to be years completely thrown away. The very writing of a journal is a burden. Memory is failing. Very little enthusiasm for anything remains. These are the early symptoms of that mental depression that follows too long a residence in this monotonous climate, and which is often characterised as Basrahead. Of course, not all Irish doctors' wartime experiences were characterised by depression and idleness. Several regularly reported being overworked, including those dispersed throughout various field ambulance divisions. When active, a field ambulance was one of the most busiest units involved in the war. Thomas Gordon, in his address to the Students' Union of the Royal College of Surgeons, recounted a tale about a friend who was in charge of a field ambulance in France. The friend had informed him how in one day they had dressed 300 men to send off as quickly as possible to the hospital train in order to make room for more. Gordon asserted that it's not surgery. Under these conditions, it's simply packing. In April 1915, the Royal Army Medical Corps reassigned Stafford A.D. Curran to a field ambulance and his mood noticeably changed. He says, got charge of the motor ambulance cars, just what I wanted. I like this class of work. In contrast to his days spent as a regimental medical officer, his assignment in the field ambulance division brought a new daily routine and a completely new set of responsibilities and his excitement that the new role was clear. 
He says, I am to go up tomorrow to take charge of the Lucknow Field Ambulance Unit. I am writing this in my little room and needless to say, I feel very excited as it's a big undertaking and I feel anxious that all will go well. I feel that there is a tide in the affairs of man, so I must take it at the flood or be left. This is a big day in my life. A field ambulance transferred wounded soldiers requiring additional treatment to base hospitals, which were located on the lines of evacuation, and the wounded were either treated here or loaded onto a hospital ship to be returned to hospitals on the domestic front. So from 1914 to 1918, the Royal Army Medical Corps' casualty evacuation system extended beyond the national borders that enclosed the battlefields of the eastern and western fronts. Casualties were evacuated from ports near the front lines to Britain by specially designed hospital ships and then distributed to military hospitals throughout the region. The Royal Army Medical Corps also decided to incorporate existing Irish military hospitals into this casualty evacuation system. So hospital ships transported approximately 20,000 soldiers from the battlefields back to Ireland and the Royal Army Medical Corps' Irish command distributed them among these hospitals. Approximately three months after the declaration of war, wounded soldiers arrived on hospital ships in Ireland. On the 26th of October 1914, the Oxfordshire docked at Queenstown Harbour County Cork. So that's the ship that you can see there. The luxury cruise liner, which military authorities had converted into a fully equipped hospital ship, travelled from the French port of Boulogne to Queenstown, carrying approximately 700 men and officers from various Irish and non-Irish regiments. This included the Connacht Rangers, Leinster Regiment and Royal Welsh Fusiliers. Once the wounded were unloaded from the ship, they were distributed among the military hospitals throughout Ireland. At the beginning of the war, Ireland was home to several military hospitals situated in various cities, most notably around Belfast, Cork and Dublin. And these institutions became part of the Royal Army Medical Corps' First World War casualty evacuation process. From 1914 to 1918, the King George V Hospital in Dublin was Ireland's central military hospital. The Royal Army Medical Corps also reached an agreement with more than 40 civilian hospitals in Belfast, Cork and Dublin to provide accommodation and medical treatment to soldiers. So what you see happen is they extend the, the existing military hospitals. Those military hospitals that are already there go under significant expansion. However, it's simply not enough. They need the help from the civilian hospitals and they approach the civilian hospitals within their various administrative districts, Belfast, Cork and Dublin, and get the help from the, those hospitals who are willing to participate. These hospitals, of course, were primarily voluntary institutions, which relied on income garnered from public subscri subscription schemes and donations. The treatment of wounded soldiers in domestic civilian hospitals was a natural extension of our Irish medical profession's support for the British Army Medical Services during the war. In addition, the War Office had also offered to pay a maintenance grant to hospitals for each soldier, and this had the potential to alleviate the financial crisis that plagued many of the hospitals. By the, early, by the early 20th century, Ireland's civilian hospitals were in a precarious financial position. Their over-reliance on charitable donations made them susceptible to downturns in public financial support. In the years prior to the outbreak of the First World War, several of Dublin's civilian hospitals suffered financial hardship due to a significant fall in public donations and bequests. According to William Martin Murphy, who was interviewed as part of a 1913 committee into the hospitals, he said only for people dying occasionally and leaving legacies, the hospitals could not be kept up at all. The War Office's offer of payment for each soldier under treatment therefore appealed to hospital governors. However, that itself wouldn't have necessarily explained the attraction of the financial, the financial income. What did, however, is the immediate rise in income from donations from philanthropic groups because these hospitals were accepting soldiers. 
In December 1914, the British Red Cross Society circulated a letter to every civilian hospital in Dublin, announcing that they were considering giving a grant to the Dublin hospitals which treated wounded soldiers. This was part of the Society's wartime strategy in both Britain and Ireland, providing financial support to civilian hospitals for the purposes of establishing wards for soldiers within existing institutions, rather than purchasing and equipping new buildings. So aside from some notable exceptions, such as the establishment of the Red Cross Hospital in Dublin Castle, the Society argued that this was a better use of money raised due to the considerable expense involved in building or establishing new hospitals. From 1914 to 1918, Red Cross contributions were among the largest donations received by Ireland's hospitals. In most cases, the Society covered the cost of furnishing whole wards with new beds and equipment and provided regular financial support towards the upkeep of these wards at later intervals. Due to the increase in public donations and the considerable financial support from the British Red Cross and individual contributors, Dublin civilian hospitals experienced a revival in income in comparison to the revenue received during before the war. So you can see there on the chart Sir Patrick Dunn's hospital income, and it, it almost doubles during the peak period of the war because of this income from the Red Cross and various other um, philanthropists. Yet, while hospitals undoubtedly witnessed an improvement in income during the war years, ultimately most suffered significantly because of the rising costs associated with the conflict. The First World War encouraged the onset of inflation. Prices of daily goods, including fuel and food, increased and this significantly raised the cost of hospital overheads. Rising admission, numbers coupled with a significant increase in the price of daily supplies, multiplied hospital expenditure significantly. In a public statement issued as part of the House of Industry Hospital's annual report, the governors explained that Owing to the very large increase in the cost of food and of surgical and medical appliances, it is most difficult to keep open all the beds. They now look more than ever to the public for the necessary funds to pay current expenses. Before the war, similar public appeals had been successful in raising funds, and it was predictable that the governors had adopted a similar tactic during the concluding stages of the war, which were especially financially difficult. So you can see the rising expenditure there for Patrick Dunn's as the war nears its conclusion. The public response during this time, however, was less than enthusiastic. Hospital income raised from subscriptions and bequests declined in 1918, and the Royal City of Dublin hospital governors also registered a decrease in donations, bemoaning that, alas, not all of our friends are immune from the great financial struggle for existence brought about by war. As a natural consequence, many of our annual contributions have been considerably reduced, and some have been discontinued. So. What impact then did this actually have on civilians who these hospitals were designed to accommodate? Well, in response to the financial crisis brought on by war, many of these hospitals that admitted paying patients increased their prices for civilians. In June 1918, the Royal Victoria Eye and Ear Hospital increased its charges by 25%, as hospital and authorities believed that they had no alternative due to the rising prices and falling off of subscriptions owing to war. Hospital governors also had to cope with staff shortages during the conflict. The governors had demonstrated concern about staffing levels since the beginning of the war when members of the medical staff started to enlist. The concerns of governors intensified as the war progressed and staff shortages became even more severe. By May 1917, for example, 7 out of 10 members of the Royal City of Dublin Hospital regular medical staff were away on war service. However, neither newspaper or journal articles nor hospital records and reports from inspection boards reveal specific evidence of a decline in the standard of civilian health care due to staff shortages. 
Wartime reports from the Board of Superintendents of Dublin hospitals explicitly note that staff shortages did not affect civilian healthcare in the hospitals they examined. In 1918, the board reported that while several staff at the Richmond, Whitworth and Hardwick hospitals were serving in the army, they found work being carried on very much as usual, owing to the remaining staff taking on increased duties. Likewise, following an inspection of the Mead Hospital, the board claimed that with a staff diminished by the call of war, the hospital does its work as usual. After a very critical inspection, we have nothing but good to say of it. A couple of things are important to note here. And Primarily amongst them is that the Board of Superintendents of Dublin Hospitals reports provide an intriguing insight into the workings of Dublin's hospitals, but they cannot be relied on to wholly provide an impartial viewpoint on the workings of the hospitals. The Board had a membership of 12, and among them were representatives of the Boards of Management of the hospitals that were being inspected, and thus they were unlikely to be critical of their own institutions. Yet their opinions cannot be totally discounted, and the reason that I say that is that there were some ways that the hospital governors were able to somewhat offset the loss of staff during war. And certainly it's evident that hospitals exploited their long-standing relationships with local medical schools, and medical students often took additional responsibilities for medical care on the wards during the conflict. So you see this large influx of medical students into the wards to take up places that were vacated by those who had participated in the war. In addition, when governors believed that there was a danger of losing all experienced staff, they stopped granting leave to those requesting to go to war. And this is particularly notable in 1918. So it's really only in 1918 that you begin to see governors of various hospitals say no, that their staff cannot go to war. Yet this is not to suggest that the First World War did not affect hospital provision for civilians. On the contrary, the admission of soldiers into civilian hospitals was undoubtedly detrimental to civilian hospital provision. There were multiple examples of soldiers admitted into hospitals and taking civilian hospital and asylum beds. The influx of military patients into the Belfast Asylum, for example, in 1917, pushed 400 civilian patients out of the asylum and into the workhouse. While the process of moving these patients elsewhere had already been in train when this occurred, the impending arrival of soldiers forced the authorities to reach a quick resolution and patients were transferred into an institution that was simply not designed to accommodate them. In February 1915, Sir Charles Ball claimed that all the clinical hospitals in Dublin, Belfast and Cork had thrown open their wards for soldiers, but this had prevented them from giving necessary attention to ordinary civilian cases. While several hospitals, including Sir Patrick Dunn's, had constructed new wards for soldiers, the majority admitted military patients into wards that were previously reserved for civilians, thus limiting the accommodation available for civilian patients. In May 1915, the North Dublin Union Board of Guardians complained that the lack of accommodation in the city hospitals caused by the war was thus pushing civilians into the workhouse. According to the Guardians, the citizens are deprived of the accommodation that they ought to get. In most cases, it appears that the treatment of soldiers certainly took precedent over civilian needs. And on the 2nd of November 1917, the medical staff of the House of Industry hospitals inquired of the governors whether civilians could be admitted to the soldiers' ward when the other wards were crowded. The governors granted permission, but on the condition that the ward be immediately be given up for military patients when required. So as soon as a military patient required the bed, the civilian needed to be moved out. So this is a trend that very much continues during the aftermath of the war. While numerous new wards opened in Ireland during the First World War to treat soldiers, there was a considerable reduction in medical facilities for military cases, soldiers and ex-soldiers, following the armistice. Facilities quickly reverted back to their pre-war state. So there's no real long-term benefit from the expansion program that took place during the war. 
Soldiers in Red Cross hospitals and wards were consequently transferred to civilian hospital wards. And undoubtedly, this movement of soldiers into beds attended for civilian use decreased the number of beds available for non-military patients and put pressure on already overcrowded institutions. The financial hardship experienced by hospitals during the war also continued in the decade after the armistice. Initially, however, several hospitals actually benefited and indeed became almost wholly reliant on the stream of income and donations associated with the end of war, including income from the War Office and most notably the Ministry of Pensions. So in 1920-21, voluntary hospitals in England and Wales had an income of approximately £2 million between them, and about a quarter of this came from Ministry of Pension funds, which was provided to cover the cost of ex-military patients. In Ireland, this income stream constituted an even larger proportion of revenue for some hospitals. So in the same year, 47% of the Dublin House of Industry Hospital's total income came from the War Office and Ministry of Pensions. Following the closure of wartime hospital wards, there was a considerable number of spare beds and equipment no longer needed. In Ireland, the voluntary bodies donated the majority to the civilian hospitals. For example, Major Houston, who was part of the RAMC, informed the board that of management of the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast that the St John's Ambulance intended to offer a large amount of equipment to the hospital's lab. The equipment was from a hospital in France where Houston had been working. Similarly, on the day of its closure, the board of the Dublin Red Cross Hospital offered its beds and equipment to hospitals and local educational institutions. For example, they presented a complete X-ray apparatus to the Royal College of Surgeons. But despite benefiting in several different ways from the end of the war, in the longer term, the war and its subsequent aftermath had a negative impact on Ireland's civilian hospitals. These institutions were perilously close to complete collapse in the decade after the war. Even with the significant income derived from the Ministry of Pensions and Voluntary Bodies, hospital governors could not balance the accounts. In 1918, the outbreak of influenza further undermined hospital finances. Hospital governors in several institutions were forced to pay additional salaries to doctors and nurses drafted in to replace and assist regular staff members during the influenza outbreaks. Hospital salary budgets simply spiralled out of control in the years after the war. While this can be attributed partly to the increasing staffing levels, it is primarily the result of post-wartime inflation. For example, by 1923, the salaries of the nursing staff at the Mead Hospital amounted to more than the hospital's entire expenditure in 1913. In July 1919, the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Lawrence O'Neill, announced at a corporation meeting that the Richmond, Whitworth and Hardwick hospitals would have to close on the 26th of July if additional funds could not be found. While the hospitals did not completely close, admissions were limited for a time, the, situated, the situation highlighted their severe financial difficulties. Public charitable donations to Ireland's hospitals also declined in the years after the war, so they had already been declining slowly in 1918. This continues at a rapid pace once the war has finished. While post-war unemployment did not peak in Ireland until the 30s, the war destabilised the global economy and encouraged economic disruption and chronic depression, which impacted on these charitable donations. In addition, a considerable number of hospital subscribers cancelled their, their donations following the armistice, feeling that they had done their bit. During the war, the public were very aware of the need to support the treatment of soldiers through charitable activities, as the number of casualties mounted and the large numbers of wounded were transported through towns and to hospitals. However, the presence of wounded soldiers still in receipt of treatment in civilian hospitals in the 20s was not as well publicised and subscriptions declined. Moreover, there is a correlation between the end of the regular dockings of hospital ships and the highly publicised unloading of troops and the decline in subscription rates. 
just to give some sort of insight into that, when soldiers were actually being taken off these hospital ships, the press was always there and they were always making sure that this was a, a public event, that people were aware of what was happening. But this ends once war has finished. As early as Christmas 1918, there were already signs in Ireland that public interest in the well-being of soldiers was declining. In December 1918, a letter from an anonymous contributor published in the Kildare Observer urged readers to continue to support soldiers in hospitals. The hospitals are still full of the men who have helped to make this place, this piece, a glad reality for us. Would it not be a good idea to let our tanks take the form of gifts to make their Christmas a happy one? By this time last year, there were a long list of gifts promised. This year, there are only three. Surely we shall not allow our peace Christmas to fall below the standard of our war one. Civil unrest was also partly responsible for the declining hospital subscriptions in Ireland. Due to the War of Independence and Civil War, wealthy Protestant philanthropists who were among the hospital's largest contributors had departed Ireland in the early 20s. In 1923, a member of the Church of Ireland lamented that it is the bare truth to say that we have lost more of our people during the last three years than in the 53 years since this establishment. In 1921, the Lord Chancellor of Ireland, Sir John Ross, addressed the annual meeting of Sir Patrick Dunn's Hospital Guild in Dublin, and he acknowledged the financial difficulties facing the hospitals, arguing that, owing to the disturbed state of the country, a great number of those who were formerly our best supporters are leaving the country. I am sorry for that. I think everybody should stand his ground. But still, the fact remains that they are going. Ireland is being impoverished of these good people, and England and Scotland are getting them. So due to the financial effects of war, voluntary hospital governors were forced to re-evaluate their approach to financing healthcare. Various initiatives were introduced, including increasing attempts to secure a better income from local authorities. Campbell noted that county councils would bear a fair share of the expenses incurred by the hospitals in treating the inhabitants of their districts. In addition, hospitals were increasing income from paying patients, so they were placing more emphasis on admitting those who could pay and increasing the cost of their admission. Immediately before the war, income from paying patients in six Dublin hospitals, including the Mead and the Matter Hospital, averaged about £2,000 a year. But by the 1920s, this had risen to over £25,000. Several public representatives criticised the hospitals for this approach, arguing that paying patients received treatment before the poor, and the war was to blame for this development. Yet even with the increase in income from paying patients, hospital finances continued to deteriorate in post-war Ireland. And it was the war that was regularly blamed as the culprit. So just to have a quick conclusion, I hope that this paper has given an appropriate insight into the level of Irish medical involvement in the British Army during the First World War. From 1914 to 1918, Ireland's medical profession was greatly involved in the war effort. And the initial response of the Irish medical profession was enthusiastic and medical men enlisted with the Corps at a significant pace. However, by 1918, medical recruitment had stalled, and this was largely because, by this point, as many Irish medical professionals had enlisted into the British Army Medical Services as possible, without wholly derailing the standards of medical provision in Ireland. I've also shown that between 1914 and 1918, the Royal Army Medical Corps completely overhauled Ireland's medical infrastructure for the reception of military patients as a consequence of the First World War. Ireland's network of voluntary hospitals was a primary support for the Royal Army Medical Corps' Irish command as they set aside whole wards for military patients. The impact of the First World War on these hospitals, however, was severe. Treating servicemen increased income into these hospitals, but ultimately they suffered greatly from inflation and the subsequent economic difficulties brought on by war. While the Irish voluntary hospital system had already been under heavy financial strain prior to the beginning of the conflict, the First World War was the event that almost toppled it. Thank you.